Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Ardena Osman, here with my friend, Chabruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachi Kitavot, daf nun bet, page 52. Well, our Gemara continues with a discussion about under what circumstances does a husband have to uh, redeem his wife? And it begins with a very interesting machloka between Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Eliezer, uh, which essentially is, is if, you know, a vow was made that he can't derive benefit from her. So in other words, bringing her back uh, or redeeming her, is that in violation of the vow or not in violation of the vow? And they finally end up that Rabbi Eliezer's opinion is, is that uh, we worry about sort of when that original stipulation of redeeming her was made, meaning when he was, when she first became his wife, or is it with her current status where maybe a vow was in place? And that's the opinion of Rabbi Yoshua. So just pay attention to that, Machlokas. We're skipping it today. Um, I want to read a short passage that starts at the begun, beginning, oh, sorry, at the end of Amid Aleph and goes into Amid Bet, which is sort of a classic rabbinic text uh, that's cited very often when we get into sort of modern discussions about the issue of redeeming people for ransom. Tan Rabbanan, Nishbet, let's say, so the rabbis teach, let's say the woman was taken captive. And the captors are basically asking for a ransom, which is up to 10 times her value, meaning much, much more uh, than, you know, an exorbitant amount of money, basically. For a first time, you know, he has to redeem her. But from there on, right, in other words, let's say she's taken captive for a second time. If he wants to redeem her, he can. And if he doesn't, he does not have to redeem her. In other words, this obligation of redeeming only is a one-time obligation. And this is the very famous line that you'll see sometimes in halachic discussions about this issue, Rabbi Shem ben Gamliel says, one does not redeem captives at more than their value. And why is that? Mipnei tikkun olam. Right now, tikkun olam is basically uh, uh, a um, concept that does get invoked. Um, often it's not invoked the way that we use it today. Today it has like sort of a social justice meaning to it. But in the times of the Gemara, sometimes it's used that we fix a halakha for tikkun olam because it makes the word better. better. So you'll see that there's a bunch of examples with gets, uh, with how divorce is done, that things were changed for tikkun olam. Here, it's, I think it's used in a halachic sense as well, which is Rabbi Shem Gamliel is basically saying that, um, you know, like uh, we, you know, yes, we want to create a standard where a husband has to redeem his wife. On the other hand, we are not, we don't expect, not only do we not expect, we shouldn't give in to crazy ransoms, you know, exorbitant ransoms because of tikkun olam, because this will become sort of the way of the world. And that's not something that we want to see happen. And so what this basically is saying is, is that if the captors want money, right, in accordance with the value of the redeem of the captive, right? Even though this value could be a, a, a case where the redemption is more than her ketuba, you may want to do it. But if it's this like exorbitant amount, you're not going to do it. Uvaminhi. But there, now we're going to have a contradiction with this from a different brisa. Nishbe, right? A woman is taken captive. Let's say they were seeking ten times worth her ketuba. 
Kamri Sharnapoja, right? The first time uh, they, you know, you, he, the woman needs to be redeemed. Right? But afterwards, if he wants, he can, you know, rescue her. If he doesn't, he doesn't. So here's where the Brisa differs <clears throat> from our previous Brisa. It gives a different version of Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel. We're here, Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel says, if the ransom is equal to her ketubah, then he redeems her. If not, like if it's more than what the ketubah was, right, more than what was agreed upon if she were to be divorced or widowed, then he doesn't have to redeem her. So this sets a much more, uh, you know, much greater limit here, right? It's basically the the highest price with which he needs to redeem her is basically the ketuba price, which would be, you know, 200 dinars for a bitula and 100 for a widow. Rabban Shemla Gamliel, trey kule islay. So Rabban Shemla Gamliel, so the Gemara said, Rabban Shemla Gamliel basically has two leniencies, right? There are two kulot here when it comes to all of these halachot of redeeming a captain, right? The first is, is that he says you don't have to pay more than the general ransom for a cap for a captive. In other words, you don't have to pay generally an exorbitant amount. And second, the husband doesn't have to pay more than the sum of the wife's marriage. So it seems that maybe that first sentence about not paying an exorbitant amount isn't particular just to the husband. That's to the community at large. The second one is something specific to the husband about the value of what he has to pay in relation to her, in relation to her ketubah. So that's really just this little section I wanted to read, but it's an important passage because it's one that gets cited in a lot of halakhic literature. Unfortunately, today, this is a modern day discussion that we see particularly in the state of Israel when it comes to redeeming, uh, let's say soldiers, uh, you know, Israel does do whatever it can to free soldiers, right? Often it's in uh, the sense of prison exchanges, but these types of discussions you know, all evolve from, right? We don't use money today. Today, the currency is like people to people, but how many people is one sort of soldier's life value? The state of Israel has basically said many, um, but a lot of the discussion that comes from this from a halachic point of view is based in this particular Gemara. Um, and before I go on, to, go on to my next point, anything you want to add to that discussion about the captives? No, just, I mean, I think that it's, kind of startling to realize that, that there's actually modern day ramifications for these cases that you know that feel very I don't know they feel like the the stuff of fiction or or history or something like that and not modernity and yet there's relevance right um then the next thing the next section that I just want to move and I, I guess I'm interested in this sort of as a doctor is you know this whole question of what do you owe somebody you know what needs to be paid for for a wife's uh, therapy, you know, medical care, sorry, right? So a widow, basically, who's sustained from the property of the orphans and needs medical treatment, that is considered to be like mizonot, and she gets it. Rabban Shem ben Gamliel, again, we have Rabban Shem ben Gamliel here again. Right? Medical care that, you know, he disagrees and says a treatment that has a fixed cost, right? She's, she gets it, miktubata. she gets healed from her, is subtracted then, whatever it costs, from the value of her ketubah. She ain't la kitzvah, harehi kemizonot. But if it doesn't have a fixed cost, 
it's considered like mizonot. And then we go into Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Asu Hakazat Dam Be'eret Yisrael Ein La He makes this interesting comment that bloodletting, right, didn't have a fixed cost, and therefore it would be something uh, that does need to get paid for. And then the Gemara goes on to say, Karibay de Rabbi Yochanan Itat Abba Dahabe Tzricha Revoa Kol Yoma. The relatives of Rabbi Yochanan had to take care of the wife of their father who needed treatment every day. So in other words, she had very, very high medical expenses. They went to Rabbi Yochanan to ask him what to do. And he says to them, go and fix a lump sum with the doctor. In other words, you need to try to negotiate that it's a fixed sum so it just gets deducted from the ketubah. Um, but it's interesting to sort of see this whole thing about uh, bloodletting here, right? Um, that we see that bloodletting was basically something that was performed on a fairly regular basis um, and something that the heirs actually uh, needed uh, to um, uh, needed to actually pay for. And I just sort of wanted to, uh, you know, just wanted to sort of mention this because I, I always like anything that shows this sort of like uh, a- ancient uh, medicine, but just refer back to, there's the real full discussion about bloodletting in the Talmudic world uh, is mentioned in Shabbat, Masakat Shabbat, on page 129. Um, and with that, I will hand it off to you, Anne. I think we have a Mishnah to get to. We do. I just wanted to note that, you know, and here's something that sounds like it's really the stuff of modernity, right? Like, it, it's medical, and it sounds scientific, right? And the bloodletting practice is not really so much in vogue these days. Right. So as I compared- just want to say, there are a couple of very rare disorders where some of the intervention is that you actually do take blood from a patient in today's world. Like there's something called polycythemia vera. There's a couple of other things as well, but we don't but use first, blood blood in, in the way that they did in the ancient world. <laughs> right. Like, and even not in the not so ancient world in the 1500s already. Right. Meaning, which is quite distant past for us, but not anywhere near as distant past as the Gemara. They were still doing this kind of thing and people thought they needed it like to, to, I don't know what, to rejuvenate their blood, you know, Maybe it does rejuvenate the blood, but the way it was in use in in common, you know, villages, let's say, was not that was not is not as countenanced by modern medicines. Right. Okay. All right. New Mishnah. Lo katavla binyan dichrin de yavu leika minai inun yirtun kesef ktubatech yater alcha. So what we have here is surprising Aramaic and a Mishnah. Why is there some surprising Aramaic and a Mishnah? Because the Mishnah is talking about the writing of the marriage contract itself, right? Which in the in the Ketubah, you have Aramaic. So the Mishnah is going to quote the Aramaic because that's what that language, you know, that's what the, the document has, even though the Mishnah itself was written in what we nowadays call Mishnahic Hebrew. So What's his Aramaic statement? If the marriage, if the ketubah didn't include this following statement, right, that any of the male children that um, she would have from this man who gives her the ketubah would inherit the money of the ketubah in addition to their regular inheritance, right, that they would inherit with other brothers, right? Um, so again, just to read it in, back into the Aramaic, benin dechrin, male children, that they would get, that they would, your, your tune becomes your shun, right? That they would inherit, um, or maybe yarshun, 
they would inherit the money of the ketubah, yater al more on, you know, on top of the regular apportionment of that they would get from inheritance, di'imachun, from what they would share with the other brothers, chayav shehu t'nai beitin. Then, this, the, the man who did not include this stipulation in the contract is obligated anyway, meaning even if it's not written there explicitly, he still it still has to be part of the ketubah because that is a tenaybetim, meaning it's a condition of the court and it's going to take effect whether or not you actually um, wrote it out. There's an interesting discussion to be had here about why people are writing out anything that's stipulated across the board as a given that it has to be. And then you don't have to even have the conversation about what happens if you if everybody knows that this is the way a ketubah works, meaning that, that every ketubah involves X, then you shouldn't need to stipulate it. But the practice at this point certainly was to make sure that it's written. And then the question is, and after the fact, if it wasn't included there, is that clause put into effect? And the answer of this mission is yes, 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 it is put into effect because it was a condition of Beitin. Banan nukvan diahavan leke mina yahavan yatvan bavete omidzanan menichse ad de titlakun liguvrim. Now we're going to talk about the girls, right? What happens if he didn't include in the ketubah the sentence, and again, we're in Aramaic about because that would be how it would be written in the ketubah, that any female children that she, this woman would have from this man, that they would stay in his house, meaning be under his, under his household. Um, and that they would be that they would be sustained, you know, that they would have this mizonot from his property until they are until they are taken by men, meaning until they get married, right? The phrasing of that is a little bit um, not modern today either. And likewise, this is something he would be obligated in, meaning to continue to provide for his female children, even in the event of divorce from this woman because it is a condition of Beitim that it be included in the ketubah. So even if that phrase or clause got left out of the ketubah, nonetheless, the man is obligated to fulfill it. And then we go on, right? We've got another clause because it, we have more Aramaic. So if the clause that's, that says specifically that she should sit in his house and be sustained from his property, all of the days that she would live as a widow in his house, meaning and this is a question of what if he died, not divorce, right? And she hasn't remarried. Then she's entitled to sit there in his house, meaning to be sustained from his property, from his estate, I suppose, um, all, you know, for the indeterminate future, at least unless she would get married and then be under somebody else's auspices, right? And then, again, the statement here is, what if that was left out of the ketubah? Chayav, nonetheless, he is still obligated in his or his estate is obligated to provide for her because it is a condition, a stipulation of the court that it be included in the ketubah. And likewise, we can talk about whether or not you need to write it at all if it's going to be a stipulation of the Beitin anyway. So this is an interesting statement, right? The Mishnah says this is what, this is the way that the residents of Jerusalem would write, meaning specifically that the widow of the husband could stay in her in his house all the time of her that she's a widow but um once again i skipped the line and the people in the galil would like would write 
you know, this kind of condition, statement rather, like the people of Yerushalayim. However, until the, the, the residents of Judea, meaning the people who lived in, it's really outlying areas of Jerusalem, it's in the general vicinity, um, but they didn't follow the Jerusalem practice. Rather, they would write in the Ketubah until the heirs to the man who has died want to provide the Ketubah to the woman meaning not that she's going to stay there in his house as a widow forever and he has to provide for her, but that the heirs themselves can decide, all right, now we're going to pay it off. She's entitled to stay there until they pay it off, and then she presumably would move on. Meaning then if the, those heirs wanted to, they could give her to the ketubah, and then she can go wherever she wants. She can do whatever she wants, make make a living, remarry, remarry. she's got enough provision to keep her going to set herself up fresh, let's say. Um, I think this mission is fascinating um, in several specific ways. The fact that it cites from the ketubah or the the conditions that are supposed to be included in the ketubah but but might not be, and it cites them in Aramaic, I find that to be um, very worldly of the Mishnah, not to be this like code of law out there, but to say these are the these is the formulation that is used in the Ketubah, and that is going to be in the vernacular, or we still use Aramaic, but at the time it was in the vernacular, um, you know, which kind of it it's the Mishnah talking to its own generation in a specific kind of way, instead of it being this more lofty, distant code of law, let's say, and then likewise the the comparison between the different uh, regions of Israel, right? The fact that the people in Yerushalayim would do one thing and the people of Yehudah would do another thing and the fact that the people of the Galil would follow the people of Yerushalayim and not the people of Yehudah, right? Again, it's recognizing that there's a practice of this halacha, of these halachot, um, and and it's it's codified, meaning, right, it's there in the Mishnah as a descriptive way of seeing, yes, these laws are put into practice, Here's how. And we don't always get to see that in the Mishnah by a long shot. Um, Yordana, before I hit a little bit of Gemara, do you have anything to add? No, go, go, go on. There. I mean, I think it's just interesting to see again that there definitely was this notion that these Kitsubot were sort of tailored for the particular couple and the particular situation. And if they weren't tailored, there's some defaults that kick in. Right, exactly. Like there's a default, there's a level of tailoring that was allowed. And then the mission is trying to establish what the default is. Like what's the minimum standard that has to be there? Exactly. Okay. The Gemara wants to understand exactly what's going on with these tonight, with these conditions in the in the Ketubah. Right. Why is this uh, a stipulation in the Ketubah that the male children, right? What does it mean that the male children are going to, um, that they're going to inherit, right? Why is that part of the Ketubah? And it's, I find like, yes, that's a, that's a rather striking question, right? Why are the children being discussed in the Ketubah really at all? Sorry. <laughs> And the idea here is that they put the sons there so that the so that the man will be willing to like go farther 
and make sure that his daughter also has a fair inheritance, meaning that she's going to get it really as a dowry as opposed to being a Yorish in the same kind of way. as She's not considered an heir, but the father can then say, okay, the son is going to be heir to this amount of my property. I'm going to make sure that the daughter, that his daughter will get that kind of money coming to her in the, in the form, in the fashion of a dowry. Um, otherwise, presumably, it would be divided up amongst her brothers, right? Again, it's a little bit strange to me that this is the ketuba, right? And then the Gemara goes on. So the Gemara says, is there anything that's going to like justify a situation where the Torah says that the son inherits and the daughter does not inherit? Because that's exactly what we just saw in the Mishnah, right? The sons are going to inherit, the daughters are not going to inherit. And the Gemara says, okay, but it, it says that the sons are going to inherit so that the man will realize that he needs to make sure that the daughters also get the money Right. So the Gemara is asking the sharp question that I think is, you know, very evident here. And it answers, they wrote, Brata lo terut, Baaturabanon omit kene de terut brata. Again, we're still Aramaic, right? So it's a little bit, the language is a little bit harder. But basically, it says the Chazal came and they, like, shouldn't Chazal come and, like, make it a tanai, make it a condition that the daughter should also inherit? And so the point is that they didn't make it a claim that the girls are going to inherit. That would be too much upheaval of the general system. But the goal is to make sure that both sons and daughters have their equal or at least equivalent portion in their father's goods. Look, I think it's interesting here that the Gemara wants to give some wants to make it equal, I guess, between the sons and daughters. Like, you know, it's not it clear that it does, I mean, like, that's this. Let's put it this way. That's this little passage of the Gemara's presumption. I'm not so sure that we can levy it across the whole Gemara. You know? That I would agree with. I think that's a good way of saying it. So take note that it's here. And then when we see another passage that talks about inheriting, we need to see if this seems to be consistent. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydrum website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Time with Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend, Chavuta Ann Gordon. Our DAP today, Masachi Kitubot DAP Nun Gimel, page 53. Well, our DAP begins actually in the previous DAP with a very interesting story uh, that shows some of the negotiations that took place when people got married. And I point this out because I think one of the things we paid attention to in our study of DAF Yomi is when the Gemara goes from discussing halacha and then bringing sort of practical real world examples. And this is one of the few that we've seen so far in Masachet Kitubot. And I think it's actually a very interesting story uh, that shows a little bit like how some of this worked. Um, and I also think it is a little bit of an unfair ending. Rav Papa So Rav Papa wanted his son to marry to the family of Abasura. And um, he went to basically, you know, watch the writing of the, of the Ketubah. Shema Yehuda Bar Meymar. So, uh, so Yehuda Bar Meymar heard that Rav Papa was coming. And so he came and presented himself to him, like, you know, to show him kavod. 
Um, so when they got to the entrance of Abba, uh, Abba of Surah's house, right? So Rav Yehuda Bar Memar basically wanted to leave Rav Papa and not go into the house with him. So Rav Papa says to him, let the master come in with me. You came to honor me. Why don't we go in together? So Rav Papa saw that, uh, you know, Yehuda Bar Memar was not, didn't like the idea of going into the house. Amar lay, so he says to him, Matatech, right? Uh, what what is it that you're upset about? Mishum to Amar lay Shmuel of Rav Yehuda. Are you do you not want to go because Shmuel said in the name of Rav Yehuda, right? Shinana, right? La tihi ba'abure ach sanata afilo mi bisha livere tava. Delo yide mai zara nafig mine v'chol shechemi bure livereta. You shouldn't be a partner in the transfer of inheritance, even from a bad son to a good son, because it's not known what will come from the bad son. In other words, the idea is, is that was he thinking, did he not want to go in uh, because he was thinking about this statement of Shmuel who said in the name of Rav Yehuda that it's not a good idea. Let's say you had two sons. One was a good son, one was a bad son. You decide you're going to transfer everything only to the good son. Why? Because maybe the bad son will end up having good children. Right. And even more so, right, one should not partner in the transfer of inheritance from a son to a daughter. So, um, hi, Nami, Takanta, de Rabbananhi, to Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Minshun Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai. So, Rabbi Papa continues and he says, uh, you know, basically, are you worried, you know, what he figures out is maybe he's worried that if Yehuda Bar Memar goes into the house, it's going to sort of pressure Abba. Uh, you know, Abba of Surah to basically give more money for the dowry. And so he says, this is also a takana of the Chachamim, that a father has to basically provide a dowry for the Chachamim. And it was said in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, in the name of Rabbi Shimon ben Zakkai, right? That, and which was quoted on the previous page, that basically a man should take, you know, this initiative and basically give a, a dowry as large as the portion of his possessions that his son will get in the inheritance. Um, and that that's what should happen. Amar lay. So he says, Yehuda ben Meimar says to him, this applies only if the man gives of his free will. In other words, it needs to be of his free will to give this dowry. But what? But should you force him to do it? Amar lay. So Rapapa answers, Right? Did I say to you that you should, you know, enter and force him? Right? Um, right? I just said, you know, come in with me, but don't force him. So there's this very funny exchange here because it's like Yehuda, Bar, you know, uh, Yehuda, uh, uh, you know, is ba- Yehuda Bar Memar is basically saying like, you know, that if I go, right, it's gonna, you know, kind of force him, uh, Abba of Surah to sort of give more money. And Rapapa's kind of playing this game. He's like, no, 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 you're just gonna walk in with me. You don't have to force him to anything. Right? So he says to him, just my going in, this is what Yehuda Bar Memar says, is basically going to force him. It's going to make him increase the dowry in my honor. So Repubba basically forces him to go and he enters. So he's silent because he's annoyed to be there and he sits there. And so therefore, Abba of Sur thought that maybe what? Yehuda Bar Memar was angry with him, right? Because he's sitting there and he's not talking. And so therefore he writes a dowry that he basically gives 
everything that he has to this dowry. Le Sof Amarle, right? And even after that, he still sees that Yehuda Bar Memar is not speaking to him. And Abba Sura says to him, Hashta Nami Lami Shtatemar. He says, even now you won't talk. Right? He says, by the master's life, I've left nothing for myself. So it's just this whole story is like kind of like, I don't know that I want to say it's comic, but it's like a series of misunderstandings, right? Where Papa, in a way that I don't know is totally genuine, sort of forces Yehuda Bar-Memar to come. Yehuda Bar-Memar resents being there, so he sits there angry. So in the end, he does end up negotiating, in a way, by his behavior, this huge dowry for a Papa's son, uh, because Abba Sur is so worried that he's angry with him. And then he sees that he still isn't talking, and he says, like, what else do you want? You know, basically, what else do you want from me? So Amarle, so Yehuda Bar-Memar says to him, Imi Naidi Day, right? If you're acting for my sake, I feel I nami to kitab la nichele. Then even what you wrote, it doesn't agree with me. In other words, you shouldn't have done what you thought would please me. Amarle, so he says to him, Hasha nami hadarbe. So he says, fine, I'll retract it. And then in a way that I think is so unfair, Yehuda Bar-Memar basically is like, no, 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 I'm not even going to let you get away with that. Amarle, shavuye nafshechei hadrana like kamane. Right? So he says, I didn't, I didn't speak to you so that you sure should turn yourself into the kind of person who retracts his words. So in other words, nope, no. It's fine to be like very, very, very unfair. So I'm not quite sure what to make of this story um, because I think it's like, you know, it wants to show the negotiations. And I think part of what the story is showing is that like these types of negotiations were very fraught and very, very delicate I think the other piece the story is trying to show is that maybe these really should be things that are negotiated just between the families and, you know, not having another person sort of come in to negotiate these things because we see this turned out terrible for uh, for Abba of Surah. I want to point out just one other thing before I hand it over to you and about Ahmed Aleph. Uh, after this story, there follows this whole discussion about a woman by Mine Rav Yemar Saba Me Rav Nachman. Rav Yemar the Elder asks this question of Rav Nachman. Let's say a woman sells her marriage contract to her husband. She, she basically sold him the right to not have to pay her marriage contract if they divorce or if, or if she gets widowed. And so the Gemara basically asks, what if she has a different uh, ketubah that's sort of provided for her male children? Does that document still stand? Um, and so Rava says, you know, you can raise this dilemma with somebody who forgoes the right to her marriage contract. And what ensues is a very lengthy discussion about whether or not she still gets this, she can still maintain uh, this ketubah binyan dechorin. So I think one of the things to also notice from this passage is, is again, and one of the things we've talked about today, our ketubah is a standardized form. They're, they're all the same. But at least in these times, and we've seen this even from other evidence, you know, from I told, I've mentioned many times the Cairo Geniza ketubah, people really negotiated individual things. So the ketubah was one thing that you negotiated. That was sort of to her benefit. And then you could also have this additional ketubah, which was sort of negotiating uh, on behalf of of male children. Um, and I think it's just interesting, again, to see all the di- different levels and ways 
that, you know, women sought to sort of negotiate and to protect themselves. Um, and I, you know, I relate this even back to the previous story that, you know, I think marriage was economic, where Papa wants to make sure he gets a good dowry. So he sort of forces a friend to come with him. Here we see the idea that a woman could have negotiated an additional ketubah to protect male children. Um, and that, you know, there was, we don't really relate to marriages, but yes, there are people who sign prenups, um, you know, if there's a lot of wealth that's involved, but it's not something that's commonly done with most marriages today. Um, and I think it's just interesting to see, you know, what I'm getting from Ahmed Aleph here is just how economic, uh, you know, the marriage actually was for, for the two families involved.